Hello, everyone, and welcome to Integrated Rhythm. Happy Black History Month. Of course, every month is Black History Month, technically, and of course, in jazz dancing, every month is definitely Black History Month. Due to unforeseen circumstances, we were not able to have an interview for you this week. But it just so happens that on Swung Over Today, we put out an article that is full of black history and jazz dance. And we thought, well, we could do that. So here we present The Rise of the Big Apple. Integrated Rhythm with Jasomo and Bobby. August 1937. Just a couple weeks after the third annual Harvest Moon Ball, the black American newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, publishes an article trying to explain a new popular dance experience taking over the ballrooms called the Big Apple. And, as we shall see, the dance's future was entwined with the Harvest Moon Ball in a small but meaningful way. Origins The Big Apple was a specific way black Americans were social dancing at a synagogue-turned-club called the Big Apple Club in Columbia, South Carolina. They'd move in a large circle and a dancer would call out steps. This dancing almost certainly has its roots in two places. First and foremost, in the ring shouts of the black peoples of the Carolinas and Georgia, the Gullah peoples, where dancers stood and moved counterclockwise in a circle in spiritual dance. And those ring shouts almost certainly have their roots in West African dance cultures, where dance is most often shared through individual movement and a circle of one's community. Sound familiar? Jam circles are also part of that lineage. When Big Apple historian Judy Pritchett visited the club, which still stands, she hypothesized the spiritual nature of the dancing being done at the Big Apple Club was perhaps encouraged by the stained glass windows in the club, holdovers from its days as a Jewish house of worship. The second place the dance possibly has roots is in the local square dances of those regions, dances with called steps like the Virginia Reel. By the way, Big Apple historian Judy Pritchett speculates that it's possible the calling of dance steps in white American dances, like the Virginia Reel, might have come from black American culture. Traditionally, 1800 European popular folk dances were learned as choreography, and the calling of a dance would mean the execution of that choreography. Think Jane Austen movies. In the South, during enslavement and after, Black people were commonly sought after by whites as dance musicians. Those black musicians might very well have been the first people in known European cultural dance history to take announcing the next dance up to announcing the next steps as they happened, similar to what they would have done in ring shouts in black American worship services. Further research is needed in this. It's just a speculation. The Big Apple Club had a balcony where the women sat back in its synagogue days. As a black dance club, that balcony became a popular spot for local white teenagers and college students to go and watch the dancing. They took it back to their schools and universities for their dances and proms. For instance, it was reportedly performed at the University of South Carolina's graduation dance a couple months before the Harvest Moon Ball would take place in New York. 
Those students of the area then went on summer break to the Carolina beaches, to the Virginia beaches, where the dance spread like wildfire to all the other students on vacation there. Thankfully, rather than ignoring its origins, a lot of those students told people where they got it from, which is often mentioned in many of the first articles detailing the dance. By July, it was being written about throughout the southeast coast. Here's a quote from the Richmond Times-Dispatch, July 21, 1937. Content warning. This article was written in 1937 and is addressing black Americans and black American culture. So we apologize and we will go over some of the problematic writing in this article. This new dance is called the Big Apple, and it is supposed to have originated in a Negro dance hall by that name in Columbia. According to Mr. Harris, it was danced at the University of South Carolina commencement hops, and he predicts that it will get up north next season. Like the Charleston, it may make the rounds. It has all the look of a natural. Whether it travels far or not, it has a culturally fascinating plot. If Mr. Harris has the chapter of its genesis written correctly, we see the Negro here going far back in the history of the dance in the White South and combining what he finds with cosmopolitan Terpsichorean elements which seem to have been snatched out of the air. When the process is completed, the dance passes back to the White South, all of which proves nothing important except that culture's got rhythm. Quick but important detour. The language of 1930s white American media. There can be so much cultural subtext in these old articles that we arguably don't have the proper time to responsibly unpack it all. But we want to go over a few basics. On the one hand, the journalist above has got a handle on the basic concept that black Americans have traditionally taken elements of white Euro-American culture and created new art forms by combining them with their own cultural elements, and that those art forms then become very trendy among white people. But note that they say that when that's done, the dance passes back to the white South. Passively, as if the black people involved had any real choice in that. In our majority white society, white people taking up black culture's art forms has traditionally not involved the opinions of the black community in the process. Also, the columnist seems to think that black American cultural elements come out of the air, instead of centuries of distinctive black cultural creation and artistic labor by black Americans. On top of their obvious ties to the African heritage and the incorporation of some of those passed down elements in their artistic values. Finally, the article ends with, quote, all of which proves nothing important except that culture's got rhythm, unquote. This sentence miraculously both erases the importance of black contribution to American art and then ends with the racist stereotype that black people have good rhythm. For three Harvest Moon Ball essays in this series, 
and several other newspaper research articles so far. We've shown you 1930s articles about black dancing mention rhythm like it's a newspaper regulation. That won't change very much in the decade after this article. But we need to address this stereotype and why it exists, even if just briefly. It is true that West African music and culture emphasizes rhythm heavily, much more than European music, for instance. Specifically, it emphasizes a layering of rhythmic momentum and polyrhythms that create in many listeners the need to move to the music and experience it corporeally. It's one reason dance and rhythm are so interconnected in African cultures. They emphasize music that makes people move. That artistic value has been passed down over generations and is still an important part of black people's different distinctive cultures today. Think of how rhythmic and inherently danceable Afro-Cuban, reggae, swing, and hip-hop are, for instance. Emphasizing rhythm has also passed down as a value in black American dance. For instance, Frankie Manning, Norma Miller, and numerous other pioneers of jazz dance have at some point said the rhythm is the most important component of Lindy Hop. In Eurocentric cultures, however, rhythm is not as heavily valued, and therefore those who value it so much have been considered other and thought of as not as artistically advanced as those with European artistic values. It also just so happens that drums being one of the oldest instruments in the world, are the musical foundation of many indigenous peoples throughout the world. And as such, Eurocentric culture over the last few hundred years has equated drumming and rhythm with uncivilized culture and even savagery. The obvious racism of this is apparent. But during the jazz and swing eras, a specific twist on this was very popular among progressives. The exotic, quote, jungle racism of the, quote, noble savage. Some of the more obvious examples of this in action are Josephine Baker dancing topless in her banana skirt or Duke Ellington playing, quote, jungle music in the Cotton Club, a whites-only club that featured this racial mentality. The same club regarded by many as the zenith of black American performance, where even Whitey's Lindy Hoppers occasionally performed. So, basically, every time a newspaper article from this era brings up black people and rhythm, the historical social context underneath it is either noble savage or simply savage. It's also important to note that although rhythm may be culturally valued, it is by no means natural in black Americans. And believing that to be true does two insidious things. First, it devalues the incredibly hard work that many black musicians and dancers have done in order to achieve superb rhythm. Second, it implies that those black Americans who struggle with rhythm are broken or not as black as others. This stereotype is so powerful that these black Americans can struggle with their cultural identity over it and be taunted across cultures. Having discussed these things, 
We put another Big Apple article with some problematic language common of the time in the, uh, in the article published so that people can take a moment to read it over and think about what those problems are. The craze. All right, back to the Big Apple. By September of 1937, just a few months after its debut in Virginia's and Carolina's beaches, the Pittsburgh Courier was already reporting the dance was being done in Harlem. In his book, Frankie says that the Big Apple performance was so popular that it even replaced the weekly Lindy Hop contest for a while. The Big Apple became huge, and it did so fast. In its home state, the Aiken Standard, a Carolina City paper, reported on July 16th that the original Big Apple Club had to bar whites from going into the club because they were swarming the place. Fascinating, right? Sadly, it doesn't say anything more than that about the situation. Big Apple performance groups, both white and black, came out of Columbia. A black group performed regionally but suffered a horrible accident while traveling where two of its members were killed. The white group ended up doing a residency at the Roxy Theater in New York. And the dance craze soon became mentioned all over the country's newspapers. One search in our newspaper archive for Big Apple Dance in 1937 gave around 2,000 results in newspapers from almost every single state, all of them from July and after. For comparison, there were around only 1,000 results for Lindy Hop mentioned in newspapers nationwide that entire year, and hundreds of those were from the Harvest Moon Ball announcements and articles. We'd like to take a moment to remind the readers that the Big Apple wasn't simply just a new dance, like 1937's, quote, new partnership dance, The Shag, or 1937's, quote, new Harlem solo dance step, Pecking. A new dance step came along fairly often. The Big Apple, though, for many, was a whole new way of experiencing social jazz dance. In a circle of dancers, based on call and response, with dancers or couples taking turns shining. And it was a very black American way to experience dance. And for many, that was part of its appeal, mentioned Big Apple historian Judy Pritchett, even and especially in the segregated South. Once again, white America fell in love with a black American expression of art, even while fearing, threatening, and distancing itself from black Americans. It was during the first crucial months of its popularity that Herbert Whitey White learned about the craze and went to the Roxy to see the visiting Big Apple dancers perform. He took notes, writing down everything he saw. And by October, some form of the Big Apple was already being performed at the Savoy. Whitey also got his notes to Frankie Manning, who was out with a team in California preparing to perform for the upcoming Judy Garland film, Everybody Sing. Whitey knew the dance craze was popular and wanted his dancers to be the first to put it in a film. In the grand tradition that still carries on with instructors to our very own dancing generation, Frankie Manning worked on the project in the lobby of the hotel. For the scene, he did a called version for the Whitey's dancers, 
Though, as it was for film, it's possible it was all or mostly choreographed, and the calls were merely performed to make it appear in the moment. According to IMDb, Everybody's Sing was in production from September 2nd through the end of that year, so the memory certainly matches up time-wise. As per usual, Whitey went out to be on location for the filming. One day, when Judy Garland got to take a break, and the well-worked Whiteys didn't, Whitey got in an argument with a director. Rather than back down, Whitey told the dancers to sit down, which they did. Frankie doesn't say when they stood back up again, but he does imply they eventually finished filming the scene. When the film came out, the former prize fighter Whitey had learned the hard way how Hollywood could fight back. The Whitey's Lindy Hoppers and the first Whitey's Big Apple sequence on film were nowhere to be seen. The movie had been rewritten. Instead of going to Harlem, Judy Garland went to Chinatown. It's important to note that along with the stories of Whitey's manipulation and profit-seeking, Whitey also had, by many accounts, a great deal of respect for his dancers and the dance. It's also a reminder of what could happen when black Americans demanded respect in show business. Their art wasn't seen. The two things are connected. Whitey stood up for his dancers, and the world didn't get that Whitey's Lindy Hop performance. Another interesting thing appears in newspapers in October of 1937, a few weeks after the Harvest Moon Ball. The mentioning of a group called the Arthur Murray Shag Dancers. They created a film short called The Big Apple. According to historians Lance Beneshek and Forrest Outman, the dance instructor and ballroom owner Arthur Murray had heard about The Big Apple and went looking for it in clubs in New York, but couldn't find it. So, he hired the visiting Big Apple performers at the Roxy Theater to teach it to him. Also fun fact, the story goes it was while searching for the Big Apple in New York dance halls that Murray realized how big Shag was and decided to start adding it to his curriculum. We don't know what originally inspired Murray to start his own swing dance performance group, but as a major force in the New York professional dance scene and as a judge at the Harvest Moon Ball for the last three years, it certainly wouldn't have escaped his attention that there was a group called Whitey's Lindy Hoppers that seemed to be doing pretty well in the world of exciting swing dance performance and competition. The Shag and the Big Apple were the new popular dances, not to mention the newest wildfire crazes among his own market of white Americans. And so it sounds possible Arthur Murray could have started asking himself, what would Whitey do? And where did Murray get his dancers for his group? They were taken from the Shag finalists of the 1937 Harvest Moon Ball. Arthur Murray had acquired the dancers, planned the film, and announced it all within a few days after the Harvest Moon Ball. According to Big Apple historian Judy Pritchett, up until this point, Murray had been only moderately famous as a dance expert. The Big Apple craze made Arthur Murray. Before the Big Apple, Murray had only a few dance studios with his name on the door. Only a year or two after, there were hundreds across America. 
So, having never done anything like this before to our knowledge, Arthur Murray had noticed both the Big Apple and the Shag trend blossoming in New York at around the same time. Hired a bunch of young dancers right out of the 1937 Harvest Moon Ball Shag finals to make a performance group with his name on it that would do tours and make films on both the Big Apple and the Shag. How whitey is that? The Big Apple would be performed at the Savoy for several more years. 1935's Harvest Moon Ball champion Leon James and fellow Whitey's Lindy Hopper Eunice Callen would become favorite step callers at the Savoy. At some point, they even built a large round platform for the caller to stand on. The late swing dance historian Terry Monahan has said it was apple-shaped, but we personally have not seen pictures that show its shape clearly. After calling out dance steps for a while, the caller would call out a leader and a follower to come out or up onto the platform and dance together. The raised platform, the story goes, was just a little too small to comfortably do acrobatic partner dancing on, not that that necessarily stopped anyone. There's even a film showing scenes from one of the Whitey's Big Apple performances in 1938 at the Savoy. That video can be seen in the article. In the clip, you see Leon James in a white suit in the center of a ring of Whitey's Lindy Hoppers, with Whitey looking on from the side. There's also Billy Williams and Mildred Cruz, Norma Miller and George Greenwich, Mildred Pollard, Joe Daniels and Joyce James, and possibly even Eddie Shorty Davis all dancing in the circle. This clip is from 1938. We realized the Big Apple patterns looked familiar, and so we rearranged the footage from the original film reel and modern Lindy Hoppers will probably recognize the result. That video can also be seen in the article. The reason Lindy Hoppers will recognize the order of steps is because, finally, two years after the craze hit, Whitey's Lindy Hoppers finally got to perform a Big Apple for another film, the famous scene in 1939's Keep Punching. It's possible that by the time of filming the Savoy Big Apple in 1938 above, the Whiteys were either simply performing the routine and the caller was there for the look, or the called parts of the dance had become mostly the exciting, intricate, large pieces of the routine. Today in the scene, the Big Apple is most often performed and danced socially as the keep punching choreography. But it's important to remember that the keep punching choreography was only one version of the Big Apple, frozen in time. Frankie himself often taught it differently each time he taught it in classrooms. It's an incredible choreography, but only experiencing the Big Apple the one way is arguably missing the constantly changing spirit of the original Big Apple jazz dance, which is a unique black American dancing experience. Though some local scenes still occasionally do a called Big Apple, we think it is often thought of as more of a novelty. Perhaps when our social dancing scene lives again, we can try letting the original Big Apple live again. For a great Big Apple history film, check out Judy Pritchett's documentary, Dancing the Big Apple. For a fantastic article diving deeper into the history of the Big Apple, check out the history Marcus Koch 
wrote with insight from historian Lance Beneshek for Rock That Swing. A link to that is available in the article. The Big Apple Club is now owned by Lindy Hoppers, who are preserving it in its original form and using it as a community art center. Sources and thanks. Huge thanks to Forrest Outman and Judy Pritchett for sharing their time, resources, expertise, and insight with me in working on this piece. When not otherwise stated, all other information, especially regarding the opinions and experiences of original dancers, is from Frankie Manning, Ambassador of Lindy Hop by Frankie Manning and Cynthia Millman, and Swinging at the Savoy, The Memoir of a Jazz Dancer by Norma Miller and Yvette Jensen. Huge thanks to Jessica Miltenberger for her help in reviewing and editing the piece.